0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
1: Hello and welcome to Next on Washington Post Live. Next is our series that puts today puts today's rising newsmakers in the hot seat. I'm in the hot seat now, but today we're doing something a little bit different, and we're focusing on personal finance because tax day is quickly approaching, very quickly, and all the headlines about the economy being economy being in dire straits. We we're talking to the post's one and only Michelle Singletary, who is a personal finance columnist with infinite tips and tricks to help us navigate the choppy waters of building wealth. Michelle, thank you so much, and welcome back to Washington Post Live.
0: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: Uh, Michelle, I, I joked on Twitter when promoting this event that, uh, you know, this was getting free financial advice while working. And while that was a joke, that's also true. So a lot of these questions apply directly to me <laughs> and I'm really excited <laughs> okay. to, to get your answers on this, uh, and our notes to <laughs> our audience, we, we want to hear from you, so tweet us your questions using the handle at post live, and we'll try to get your questions into this conversation with Michelle. So Michelle, if you're ready, let's get started. Uh, nice I want to talk to you first. Perfect. I want to talk to you first about home Um, It's a main financial goal for me. But is, is it a main financial goal of younger people, my peers, millennials and Gen Z alike? Do you feel like that's something that they are focused on?
0: I think a lot of them understand how much goes into housing. And so they aren't as pressed on their own. But there are a lot of older adults, you old people, pressing these young people, uh, get a house, get a house, get a house now. And really, um, they don't need to be that pressed. And and neither do you. Home ownership is right when it's right for you. Now, having said that, I bought my first home when I was about 22 years old. Um, It was a two-bedroom condo in Baltimore. Uh, But it was the right time for me. It was a home home ownership program. I wasn't making a whole bunch of money, so I qualified for some aid from the city. So I want you to aspire to it, but not so much so that you get into a house before you can afford it. So if you are graduating with a lot of student loan debt or you still have a lot of student loan debt, you graduated for a while ago, work on that first before you get into home ownership because you're gonna need to have savings to keep that house up, to maintain it, all the costs that come with the house. So I would say, Sit down, talk to a housing counselor, a HUD-approved housing counselor, work through your numbers. And if it's the right time for you, go ahead. But if it's not, don't be pressed into it before you're ready.
1: Okay, I'm definitely aspiring. And so here's a here's a direct follow-up <laughs> for someone who's hoping uh, to get there soon. Do you have any tips for, to how to make that first home purchase while also renting? And I asked this from the apartment that my wife and I are renting. <laughs>
0: Well, I think, first of all, clear the debt off your books. And I mean all of it. Student loan debt, car loans, anything. Go into that house debt-free. That's the one number one thing. And I know lots of people want to hear that. they think, thinking, well, I will never be able to own a home. Yes, you will. So get rid of that debt first. Then practice home ownership, I would say. So whatever it's going to cost you extra, spend some months feeling. Feel, Feeling like, what's that like? So if your mortgage is going to be more than your rent, what is that like? All the maintenance that goes in the house. So you would put that money into a bank account as if you were making that payment. And those two things will put you in the position to be a good homeowner that is not stressed out. You also want to stress test your home ownership. Can you pay that mortgage and also save for retirement and also build an emergency fund and something I call a life happens fund? So you want to prepare yourself financially. Lots of times you only focus on, I got to get in a house, I get in a house, but you need to have room in your budget for the other things in life that you're going to need, like a retirement savings. And you know, if you don't have kids, future kids, you don't want to put it so that so much of your net income is going to housing that you can't save for those other things.
1: Okay. I'm officially taking notes. This is directly relevant now. <laughs> uh, I might put you on speaker for the whole household to hear, uh, but let's, let's shift into uh, student debt. We had a lot of questions about that. Um, we received several audience questions in fact, ahead of today's program. And the first one is from Jeremy in California who says, I'm so swamped in college debt and personal debt that I don't know what to do. Help.
0: yeah, that that I feel for Jeremy and so many people that um heard the 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 message that go to college, go to college at any cost. Well, I would say, Jeremy and others who are in this position is take a breath. And then look at your budget and see how much you can allocate to that debt. If it's tight and you are just getting by, I don't want you to stress yourself. So one of the things that you can do if you're not already, if you haven't already done that is get on an income-based or income-driven plan if, uh, for your federal debt. And so basically your monthly payments will be based on your household, um, how many people in your household and how much that you make. Um, and that will relieve a lot of that stress. Now, for some people, that money is still going to be too much. And then you got to look at the other major items in your budget. So um, Jeremy, are you living on your own? Maybe you can't. Maybe you need to get a roommate. If you can, not everybody can, but if you can, maybe you need to move back home and live with your parents or relatives or something so that you can reduce the biggest expense in your budget, which is housing. Then you can take that money and throw it at the student loan debt until you get it all off of your books.
1: That's very helpful. And we have another audience question here. This time it's from Kathy in Oregon. And she asks, as a parent of children in their early 30s, what advice would you recommend for securing their financial futures? What are the significant considerations?
0: I love that. And I've got kids heading towards their 30s. All my kids are in their 20s. One of them was, uh, she'll be 28 soon. <laughs> so she's right in that age group. You know, the thing that we've done for our kids is to teach them how to be good money managers. You know, you want to step out of the way. You don't want to keep bailing them out and doing things like that because that's not going to help them grow to be good money managers. So what we've done is we've positioned them to make smart money decisions. We've taught them, for example, how to be good at making decisions themselves. We have a little system in our house. Whenever you want to make a financial decision, my, the kids call it the yellow pad discussion. So my husband, they'll come to us, they'll sit down and he pulls out a yellow pad and we make a list of all the pros and cons of whatever that situation is. And it, I'm telling you, we do that faithfully. And they hate it. They hate it. They go, Oh, the yellow <laughs> pad. Um, but it's teaching them how to think through before you make a decision. And as parents, when your children get older in their 30s, you want to model good behavior, but you also want to gently guide them. You can't tell them because they don't want to hear from you. Um, but you you know, you want to set up a situation where they will come to you to help to get your help in making smart decisions. And sometimes, I'm going to be honest, I'm still a parent to those, those older 20 years. Like my my oldest, she got her job and she didn't want to put money in her retirement account. And I was like, you are going to put money in that retirement account. And she's living with us, so I do have some sort of sweat. Uh, And one of the things we (laughs) told her is that we won't charge you rent if you put uh, 15 percent of your income in your retirement account. And she was like bet. And she's very happy right now
1: that sounds like good parenting uh my parents version of that our our yellow pad was uh my my dad worked at a bank so uh we we got allowance in five dollar checks which means we literally could not spend them immediately and we had to go cash a five dollar check at the bank uh but you know i think it helped uh and on that note uh you know i want to ask a little bit about the younger people entering the workforce um and being financially independent, what advice would you give to people like your daughter who are relying on their parents at least somewhat for financial support? What would you tell them uh you know going forward that they can do to to get to a place of financial independence?
0: I think initially it's okay to still lean on parental figures if you have, if you're so fortunate to have that. And so we've got a 20, almost 28 year old, a 25 year old now, and a 22 year old, and they're all living at home and we don't charge any of them rent with conditions. So they all must save. None of them have debt. So they did, they all graduated from college. So they have no debt, but we're teaching them to take the the majority of their pay, and they do, probably like 80% of their pay is being saved or invested. Um, And my oldest has a retirement account. She has a non-retirement investment account. um, And the same thing with the other children. So that is how you prepare yourself. I I think we rush young adults out the door so quickly in the name of financial independence, but it is very expensive starting now. You know, apartments, especially if they have student loan debt, give them some room to be able to build a cushion before they launch if you do that once they launch they won't come back because we don't want you to come back <laughs> you know? and I think that I mean I hate the way we do it in America it's like 18 20 get out you're on your own but we all know that that we don't have to do that give them time as long as they're being responsible I'm not telling you to hang on to those adults who are not being responsible let them out kick them out let them see what they're gonna do because they will do better if you do that. But if they're responsible, help them, you know, into their 30s and then let them go. And they will be good money managers. They, they got decades. You, Those of us who are at the other end, they have decades to do all the stuff that we want them to do.
1: I, I like that focus. Like give, give them what they need and and then, you know, then you don't have to whatever. Just get get them ready, then you can kick them out of the nest. It's not, that's a that's a that's a good plan. Um you, yes, you mentioned sir. uh retirement a retirement accounts. So that that's a really good segue here. Can you tell us a little bit about why we should focus on saving for retirement when it's already difficult to save for, you know, just daily costs?
0: I get it. Listen, I did not come from money. Um, and even though I got a full scholarship to college as well, I, I had to do a lot on my own. And that meant my money was pretty tight when I started out. Um, but those of us who are at the other end of the age spectrum understand that the one thing young adults have that we don't have is time. And so lots of times the young adults are thinking, oh, I've got to be in crypto. I've got to have this, you know, people tell me I need even real estate property and they're giving them all the things, but the thing that they can't give them is time. So the sooner you start investing, the less that you have to invest and you can be a millionaire by the time you're ready to retire. If you put that money in and do what they call dollar cost averaging. And all that means is that you take a certain amount of money every month or every paycheck, however you want to do it, and you put it in the market, you know, and you have a diversified portfolio, stocks and bonds, and you and mostly if you're young adults, you're gonna have more equities, which are stocks, and let that grow and let time do what it does, which is over time the market has done well for investors over time, and really that's the goal. But it's a hard sell when you start off because they want to travel, they want to be out with their friends, and I get that. Carve a little that out. So okay, go out with your friends, but get. Warm instead of a drink and take that money and put it in your investment account. Or maybe you get one drink and then the rest of the time you get water. (laughs) Bartenders hated me, by the way. (laughs) But my point is that, you know, just do it while you're young, make those sacrifices. And then when you get, your older self will be so glad. You do not want your older self to reach back and slap you because you didn't do what you're supposed to do when you're young. Uh, And I just really encourage you, um, young adults, to save and invest as soon as they can. And when you get that first job, sign up for that 401k plan and try to put in as much as you can. If you can't do the recommended 15% of your gross pay, start with two, start with five, and then every year increase it by one percentage point. And before you know it, you'll be at that 15% benchmark.
1: Uh, that's okay. That's great. I'm I, I am an impatient person, but you're giving me some reasons <laughs> to maybe stop and think about the future. I'm going to start Come envisioning on, a, on an older 80%. version of me. <laughs> Yeah. If, I think this, this ends with an older version of me finally replacing that water with a nice drink and relaxing. So I'm I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. That's a, that's a good goal to set. Uh, you just mentioned 401k contributions. You already gave some good advice in this, but I, I want to uh, get directly into a question from another parent, Eileen from Pennsylvania. And she asks, how do parents of young adults encourage them to make 401, 401k contributions? So you just started to talk about this, but how, how would you continue to encourage that to happen? What other things would you say to incentivize them?
0: So let's say in our case, our kids are living with us. So they have a lot of incentive. You either pay rent or you <laughs> put the money in your retirement account. Right? That's pretty easy. Right. But let's say they're not living to. Them. And if you have the means, not everybody does, but perhaps you can match some of what they put in. So, you know, companies match contributions. And if you have some funds, some extra funds as a parent, you tell them, listen, you put in 1%. I'll put in 1% or I'll put in a half percent. You can give them incentives. And if you're not in the position to do that, and I understand if you're not, then you can show them. And we did this with my daughter. My husband sat down and showed her how much if she started putting in, at what point she'd become a millionaire, just looking at the historical performance of the market. And in fact, she only wanted to do about 10 and he showed her that. And she was like, can I put in more than 15? I was like, thank you Lord. (laughs) (laughs) And so you can either help them by giving them some incentive if you can afford it if not show them the numbers because the numbers don't lie if you show them what they can do now over time listen they will put that money in their 401k uh 401k plan and
1: real quick I like the I like the millionaire incentive. I think that's that's super smart. Uh, Okay, I want to shift into something else that I wish they had also told me more about uh, growing up in school, at least Uh, tax day, it's quickly approaching. Uh, For those who haven't filed yet, what are your quick tips on how to file?
0: So file electronically, always. It's easier, quicker. You get your refund much faster in 21 days or less. Um, you want to make sure that you uh, have your money sent direct deposited to your bank account. Um, uh, and and then the other thing is, as you're doing your taxes, and I get it, This that taxes is crazy. I cover it. It is crazy. Um, but look at your tax return. And if you are getting a refund year after year after year and your tax situation, hasn't changed, like you didn't buy a house or have a kid, then you are letting the government keep your money all year long to give it back to you in April. You don't want to do that, particularly if you're carrying consumer debt, like credit card debt. Now, back in, you know, a couple of years ago, it wasn't that big a deal because the interest rates were fairly, you know, they weren't giving you anything, right? But now you can get bank accounts paying you three, four percent, right? Safe money. And so you want to get your money throughout the year. Um, Lots of people use refunds as a forced savings. And if that works for you, you know, I reluctantly say, okay, but personally, I want my money all during the year. So I can also invest it. Maybe you're not going to put it in a bank account, but you could be doing that dollar cost averaging that I was talking to you about. Um, And so think of it that way, because I know that you could probably manage your money better than the government.
1: I I think you're right. I hope you're right. Uh, I do like this idea of of getting a a sort of a tax allowance. That sounds pretty great. Um, So going back to, to filing day, which is, you know, next week, who should consider filing an extension? And what are the pros and cons to this?
0: So if you haven't gotten all your tax documents, you should have, but maybe things didn't come in or you've lost them or misplaced them um, and you're not ready to file your return, you file for an extension and it's automatic. You don't have to give the IRS a reason for it. But here's the thing. Filing an extension does not, does not. I repeat, does not give you more time to pay. So it seems kind of crazy, right? So if you have to pay on time, that means you need to do your return uh, uh, well enough that you kind of get a sense of how much you might owe the IRS. Then you got to make that payment, even if you don't file. Um, But go ahead and do that. and Pay as much as you can, if not all of it, because you will uh, face a penalty. So if you owe the IRS and you don't file on April 18th, and they've extended the deadline for other people who have been in these areas that had severe storms, so it's either you know October or July, but if you don't uh, file on time when you owe, you face a failure to file penalty, which is pretty steep. So you want to file, even if you don't know how much, Even if you don't have the money, if you do have the money, pay as much as you can so that you reduce the amount that you owe in case you do your return and realize you owe the IRS some more money. So take the time to file the return, but if you owe, pay that money on the due date.
1: Got it. Okay. Super helpful. I, I know going back a little bit, you're talking about savings and uh, you know, whether or not you should rely on that refund every year. Can you tell us some more simple things that people can cut out of their spending in order to save substantially?
0: You know, the bit, the, the, the top three uh, places in people's budget, the things that they spend on, because I see I see a lot of people's budgets, like real people budgets, because I'm one of those financial oh, experts those that my... actually works with people. So, for example, housing and transportation and eating out. Those are the top three things. So one of them, housing, you might not be able to control that. You know, transportation, you can kind of control that because you should be buying a car with cash. Um, but eating out I see people spending five, six, seven hundred. I saw families spend fifteen hundred dollars a month eating out. Y'all need to stay home and cook, make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You know, Um, and these are, you know, really smart smart ways to find big dollar amounts. I am not going to tell you not to buy that Starbucks coffee or that premium coffee that sets your day off. I'm not a coffee drinker. I'm not going to tell you not to do that because that's not keeping you from being a millionaire. What's keeping you from being a millionaire is buying that coffee and buying your lunch and going out on the weekend and drinking and eating. It's all the totality of all of that. But if that one cup, Keeps you, I say, from slapping your coworker. I'm gonna need you to go ahead and get that cup of coffee, but bring your lunch, <laughs> you know. And just look at your budget and use those extra funds to invest and build a safety net for yourself and to build wealth for yourself. And you can do it in any job that you have or however you. I am not gonna tell you to go out buy a business and go out property because maybe you want to be a school teacher and you are great at it. But if you do the principles that I write about, that we write about at the Washington Post in our business section, which is a fabulous business section, then you will find the tools and the information you need to build wealth for yourself and your family. And that we're talking about legacy building and it can be done for where you are and what you were meant to do.
1: I love it. And and again, you can read, Michelle, uh, in the business section online, on the physical paper. Um, good news, Michelle, as your coworker that's addicted to coffee, I made myself a pot of coffee this morning, which I'm very proud <laughs> of. didn't buy Starbucks. So I'm good. I'm set. I'll be fine. I won't. I won't. Uh, I'm in a good place. But unfortunately, you and I are out of time today. So we will have to leave it there. Um, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Oh, thank you for having me
1: appreciate it. See you around. And next, I'm excited to have another edition of our roundtable where we will hear from other younger reporters from the Post newsroom. We're going to bring in two of my colleagues to talk about other major economic headlines that are impacting younger people. Joining me now from the Post economic team are Jeff Stein and Rachel Siegel. Jeff and Rachel, welcome to the conversation. Thanks so much for having us.
2: Thanks us. Thanks for having us.
1: And now I get to directly thank you because I am very often using your articles as fodder for TikTok. So uh, I really appreciate you guys keeping us afloat at the Washington Post TikTok. Account. I often use your
3: TikToks as fodder for articles, Dave. So it all comes out. <laughs> okay,
1: perfect. Yeah. It's good. It's very symbiotic. And also, Jeff is on TikTok too. So everyone should go follow him there. Those are getting really good and I'm enjoying that. Yes. Uh, so we will start with you, Jeff. Uh, I want us to talk about the financial pressures of today's world, uh, especially as it relates to younger people. So do you think it is safe to say that today's workforce is poorer than the generation before them? In general, are younger people getting poorer?
3: That's a very good and difficult question. Um, If you look at the labor market right now, we're seeing this across um, generations. Young people really have poured in in huge numbers, and the youth unemployment rate is quite low. And by that metric really the the um, number of jobs that are being held, um, the amount of young people in the workforce is is at a historic um, high and and that's quite encouraging and quite exciting and yet simultaneously, we have seen in the last year the country overall and young people in particular get poorer in real terms because inflation has made things more expensive, so people are able to buy less with the same amount of money and I Unfortunately, I don't have a great answer to you on the question of, of comparing generational wealth, but we know for certain that certain critical uh, goods and services and commodities have gotten more expensive and are difficult to, um, to buy under the same uh, amount of income, particularly housing as Michelle was alluding to. Uh, we have seen obviously a, a tremendous uh, staggering run up in housing costs over the last 20 years and accelerate in the last year or two. Um, in particular, in major cities where young people are finding sort of their only available economic opportunities, and that systemic problem has has really le- led to a dramatic traction in living standards in, in an absolutely critical way. Um, that has to be counterbalanced with we have seen the median income, um, inflation-adjusted. You know, it, it has continued to go up over the last 20, 30 years, and and um, I think some of the rhetoric around young people getting completely eviscerated economically is a little overstated, but. When we look at healthcare and housing, and obviously student debt and education costs, you put those things together and it makes a lot of sense that according to all the opinion polling we have, young people feel, and for good reason, I think feel like they have been left behind by this economy, feel like there are no good answers for them and that they are on this sort of treadmill of working and working um,
1: and not actually advancing uh, economically. I'm hoping in this roundtable we'll find at least some answers or maybe a little bit of reassurance, uh, though this next question may not provide it. I'm not sure yet. Rachel, uh, what is the current state of the housing market that Jeff just referenced, and especially as it pertains to younger people?
2: It's very complicated. If you are a renter, you have probably felt rising rent costs for over a year now. Maybe you've been looking for a new apartment or you're trying to turn over your current lease, and we'll talk to people routinely who say that they – assume that they'll be able to stay in their same home for another year and then find out that they're being charged $200 more $300 more $400 more, and that the options are limited for where else they can go that if you go further out, maybe you'll be farther away from a job or have to offset other costs from having to buy a car versus being able to walk to work. So that's this complicating issue on the rent side. On the homeownership side, there has also been this real push from policymakers who are trying to get control of inflation and slow down the economy to actually make it harder to buy a house when the federal reserve raises interest rates that causes mortgage rates to skyrocket we saw mortgage rates pass seven percent last year And if you are someone trying to get into the housing market for the first time, you're a first-time home buyer, you're competing in a market that has very few homes available, and you're competing with people who maybe already have equity from their current house, it's going to be that much more difficult for you to get into the market. So what we've been seeing for over a year now is people being squeezed on both ends. They're squeezed if they are in a current rental situation, then it's becoming more and more expensive. And then the option to try and move into the homeownership market is also really slipping from people's grasp.
1: Yeah, as a millennial who played The Sims a lot growing up, I've been using Zillow uh, like that game and I keep looking for cheat codes, but I I haven't found them yet. Uh, But still, uh, certainly something on the horizon. Uh, And also on the horizon, Jeff, is uh, retirement. I talked a little bit about that with Michelle. Um, Will the people just now entering the workforce ever receive the benefit of having Social Security when they reach retirement age?
3: Uh, it's a great question. Just as an aside, Dave, I hope you get a chance to check out the uh, SNL sketch about Zillow. I don't know if you've seen this, but like millennials. I don't think I did. I'm you know, like, literally like, making it so note. Good. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they replace their romantic uh, adventures with watching Zillow clips. Um, That's me. The, <laughs> the question about uh, Social Security, I think is a, is a really good one and a, and a pressing one right now. We know that in a handful of years, the latest projections said early 2030s, Um, If there is no action from Congress and the White House, we will see automatic benefit cuts to Social Security and Medicare of on the range of 20 to 25%, which is catastrophic and enormous. You could see seniors see uh, dramatic reductions in their pensions and um, people, you know, seniors going to the hospital expecting to get healthcare and being turned away by hospitals, which would be a scenario that I think everyone in Washington is cautiously optimistic um, will be avoided. But the problem is that as policymakers try to respond to this emerging crisis for baby boomers who vote in very heavy numbers, what will they do to the retirement benefit of millennials who um, are, I think it's pretty fair to say are a less potent political constituency um, than, than the baby boomers. And so you could see some trade offs be made at that point where to make the baby boomers whole future benefits are um, curtailed or cut or for Social Security and Medicare recipients in the future. I know most of my friends, most of the people I talk to in our generation are very pessimistic. This is, I alluded earlier to this, this sort of um, staggering degrees of pessimism economically from young people. And I think this is a big part of it. They understand, even if they don't know the precise uh, actuarial tables, that Social Security and Medicare are in for big cuts, and that they may not be um, seeing the level of benefits that, that are currently uh, provided. And that's that's quite a scary thing, I think, especially as you couple it with the fact that most employers have moved from a pension system to one that depends on um, privately managed um, retirement systems, um, uh, defined contribution plans and the like. And so um, you put these things together and it, it's quite a bleak picture. And I, I'll just say, you know, I think it's obviously very important that we uh, as journalists try to offer people the best financial advice that we can with for the circumstances that they're in. But a lot of these questions really cannot be resolved individually. There's no number of um, you know, uh, Starbucks drinks you can skip that will really fix the social security retirement um, crisis. And so these are our systemic government um, level questions that we need to deal
1: with at a macro level as well. Well, the good news is I have, I have Starbucks rewards, so hopefully that'll help that'll me out <laughs> in the long run. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Jeff, you mentioned some scary things. Another, another scary thing as a millennial, and I think my fellow millennials would agree, uh, is inflation. You know, I'm going to the grocery store and uh, my fruity, my cocoa, all my pebbles uh, seem to be costing more, amongst other things. Uh, Rachel, can you talk to us about how inflation is impacting, impacting every aspect of daily life?
2: Yeah, it's not just your cocoa pebbles, but it's pretty much anything that you would want to eat for breakfast or for dinner, or if you'd want to eat a meal on vacation or bring a meal to a friend, you'll, you'll feel it there too. And it's this huge question that we are certainly thinking through. And frankly, that I think the most powerful economic policymakers are also trying to figure out what is going on with inflation. So we can give you a little bit more of an updated answer since we got a fresh inflation report just a couple of hours ago that brought some good news and it and it brought some, you know, news that a lot of people said to make sure to take with a huge grain of salt. On the one hand, inflation is is moving in the right direction. We have fallen from the huge peaks that we hit last summer. The year-over-year inflation rate in March hit 5%. And and that is the direction you want to see. There was not necessarily ever going to be a situation in which inflation just went straight from 9.1%, which was the peak that we had last year, down to a normal level, which is closer to 2%. It was going to be a not linear and bumpy and somewhat confusing road to get there. It's just this huge open question of whether or not that is going to be able to keep up. One of the main reasons that we've seen some good news on the inflation front is that gas prices have come down since their highs from last year. We're not necessarily expecting some huge you know, boost to come right around the corner. We're not necessarily expecting rent prices to just fall off a cliff. And there are plenty of things that could push prices in any sort of direction that make it much more complicated to know where inflation goes from here. I think that the question that really resonates with people too is is how they feel about the economy and how they interact with the economy because of the way inflation is behaving. It doesn't feel good to go to the grocery store and see that your bill is much higher than you planned for or ever intended. It doesn't feel good to see that your rent is going up when you don't necessarily have another place to go. And these are all things that really sour people on the economy, even when there are reasons to be optimistic, even if maybe you would be able to get a job or push for higher pay, or have some sort of leverage in the way that you wouldn't have a couple of years ago. Inflation is this really psychological phenomenon in the same way that it's an economic phenomenon. And that's why it makes it really difficult to say, well, what's going on there it really talks into a lot of different things.
1: Yeah. And uh, you just you just kind of mentioned the the aspect of just having a job and if you're able to get one. And Jeff, I want to ask you about that because you know you can't retire if, if you don't Yeah, if if you don't have a job, uh, so can you talk to us uh, about today's job market and how that is impacting the broader economy?
3: Yeah, as as Rachel was alluding to, um, the job market has been really white hot in a level we haven't seen for a very long time. We've seen, um, employment rebounds really to close to or or above now pre-COVID levels. Um, the unemployment rate has been at you know below four percent for um. Several months, and that's been a huge um, talking point for the Biden administration. That um, you know that this is just a, a, a job seekers' market. We've had the number of quit people who are um, leaving their jobs um, and finding employment elsewhere has been at really like unprecedented levels the last um, several years. And the number of job openings for all job seekers has continued to be extremely high. Um, we're in a this difficult position now where the federal reserve is trying to cool the economy. Rachel has done obviously amazing work covering this, but, um, as the federal reserve tries to, um, camp down on inflation, people in the administration are very nervous that, um, this fight could go too far and lead to, um, this, this, um, talking point this but also this genuine achievement of the Biden administration, this hot labor market to, um, go away or to some degree be mitigated. And, as we look to twenty twenty four, Biden is is quite um, sensitive to the you know political accusation and, and the attack that he's been um, increasing inflation that that inflation is his fault. Obviously, there's a lot a big debate about the extent to which that attack is true, but insofar as he has been able to counter with the jobs message and and the unpro- unprecedented job growth in response to the economic downturn, that has been a really effective counter counter punch from the administration. However, if we see um, the Fed pushed the economy into recession to cool down inflation, the administration could lose, um, not that this is the key or most important element of it, but that, that, that political dynamic is real um, and something to watch for as we head into 2024 and, and the campaign start to ramp up.
1: Well, uh, to bring to bring the mood up a little bit in this roundtable, because I know we I know we can do it. Uh, You know, Rachel, you mentioned, you know, at least gas prices, they're getting lower. That's something, uh, Jeff, you both have talked about how the the job market's looking better. You know, I think you said red hot. Uh, So that's something good. What else can we be optimistic about in today's economy, Rachel?
2: I think that one of the things that's been most difficult to wrap our arms around over the last couple of years is just how confusing and murky things are. When we were in the thick of the pandemic, it was so hard to read what was happening in the economy. It was so hard to get a real confident sense of whether data that policymakers were looking at or that economists were looking at was right. We would see economic data that conflicted the month before or just totally broke trend the following month. And and I do wonder if there's there's excitement or, or sort of optimism in the fact that things are hopefully becoming a little bit clearer to read. Our, our understanding or ability to gauge data or read through data now has a lot of experience behind it. When you have to account for a pandemic, you have to account for uh, a war in Ukraine, you have to account for all these things that maybe forecasters are getting a little bit better at. I guess that's maybe a way of saying that I think it would be a real lift for all of us if things were just a little bit less confusing. Um, But that would certainly make it better to say, well, you know, we know the labor market is growing. We have an expectation that the economy itself is going to grow this year, that even as the Federal Reserve is trying to slow things down, that we're not necessarily barreling towards a recession and might actually end the year on, on a little bit of a higher note. And the overall sort of point of optimism here is that There are a lot of much worse situations that could have played out by now. Oftentimes when you have interest rates that go really, really high, really quickly, that has a lot of consequences that just haven't materialized yet. We have not hit a recession. We have not seen signs that suggest we're barreling towards a recession. The important note there is that, you know, things could certainly change, but there seems to be some path to landing a plane, having a soft landing is the way economists like to say it. And the hope is just that month by month, we'll get a little bit more of a sure sense of whether we're going in that direction.
1: That's great. I think we're going to land the Washington Post live plane right now. But I will say, you know, you talked about confusion. I think you guys gave me some clarity, so I feel less confused. So I'm feeling more optimistic. So uh, thank you both for that. Uh, We are out of time for the day, though. So Jeff, Rachel, thank you for joining me here on Washington Post Live. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having
0: me. Thanks.